0: Hey guys, it's been far too long since I've seen you all, and I am excited to announce a podcast meetup in 2024 here in San Jose, California. And I'm super excited to announce that I'll be co hosting the meetup on February 22nd with Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcast. Yep, the boys from Kansas City are coming to town to meet you. Mark your calendar to come out, have a drink, take some pics. And talk true crime with us at the V-Bar at Hotel Valencia on Santana Row in San Jose. Get all the information on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Follow our social media for updates and special announcements as we get closer to the date. Links to all our social media channels can also be found on our website. We can't wait to meet you. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the second part of a three-part series. If you've not yet listened to episode 308, you'll want to start there. This week I'm continuing the shocking and depraved story of the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. In May 1977, Colleen was kidnapped by Cameron Hooker and his wife Janice while hitchhiking. What Colleen was then subjected to while imprisoned in the couple's home was truly horrifying. Both his wife and kidnap victim were used to satisfy Cameron Hooker's dark and violent sexual fantasies, including torture, sadomasochism, and rape. By April 1978, Almost a year after being abducted, Colleen Stan was still held captive and subjected to regular starvation, unspeakable torture, sexual abuse, and servitude. She remained hidden in the Hooker's home in Red Bluff, California, but was moved to a more secluded location and into a mobile home. There, Hooker constructed a new and sadistic torture device in the form of a wooden box underneath the couple's waterbed. Colleen was confined inside this small cramped space for up to 23 hours a day. When she was allowed out of the box, it was only to endure more torture and degradation, including being forced to sign a slave contract. This is where we left off in the story last week. We'll continue this week with part two in the series, The Girl in the Box, The Kidnapping of Colleen Stan. The box Colleen stand was locked in under Cameron and Janice Hooker's waterbed was smaller than the previous box in which she'd been confined. The 21-year-old was barely able to breathe in the stifling and sometimes sweltering heat. Hooker had rigged up a hairdryer to circulate air inside the box, but there were only a couple of air holes in the bottom to prevent Colleen from suffocating. The hairdryer was placed just inches from her head, and the incessant whine of its motor threatened to drive Colleen mad. The only other items she had for her comfort were a radio, bedpan, toilet paper and a sleeping bag. It was the same sleeping bag she'd been using for a year, the one she'd planned to use for just a few days while visiting her friend in California. Before leaving Eugene, Oregon, she could never have imagined that it would become the only link to her life before encountering evil on a California highway. Colleen was allowed out of the box for only one hour in the evenings. She used this brief respite from confinement to eat, brush her teeth, use the bathroom, and clean the bedpan. But she was also expected to help Hooker and his wife Janice with household chores. After months of not having access to soap or water to wash with, Colleen was finally allowed to shower, but only once every two weeks. Over four months earlier, Hooker had convinced Colleen she was being monitored by a network of slave traders known only as The Company. He said if she ever tried to escape, the Company would find her and torture her to death. They had gathered information about her family and would punish or kill her family members, he warned. It was in Colleen's and her family's best interests for her to become a, quote, good slave, obedient to every order given to her by Hooker, her master. Under the terms of the slave contract Colleen was forced to sign, she was given a new name, K. Powers, and Hooker now owned her, he said. He convinced her that this was a far better option than being owned by the company slave traders, which was much more dangerous. In the Hooker's previous home in Red Bluff, he'd built a triangular-shaped box that fit under the stairs, which he called the workshop. Colleen had been confined in this space during the day. But now living in a small, single-wide trailer home, there was no room for such a space. Instead, when she was not locked in the box under the bed frame, Colleen was chained inside the bathroom. There, she was allowed to eat her meals or work on projects, such as shelling walnuts or doing macrame or crochet for Janice. When Hooker was home, Colleen was led out of the box to work alongside him on the one-acre property surrounding the trailer. She had been given a nightgown by Janice a few months after she was kidnapped as her only article of clothing. To work outdoors, Colleen was finally provided with more clothes. Pregnant with the couple's second child, Janice gave birth to another daughter on September 4, 1978. Huggard didn't allow his wife to have the baby in a hospital. Instead, he delivered the infant himself as Janice labored on the couple's waterbed. Colleen was locked inside the box underneath the bed, for the entire experience. She was allowed out of the box to perform household chores, but she had to be ready at all times for orders from Hooker. When he yelled attention, Colleen was to strip naked, stand on her tiptoes, and reach her hands up to the top of the doorway between the living room and the dining room. In the fall of 1978, Hooker made an announcement. Colleen would be allowed out of the house for the very first time. She was to accompany him to the woods to cut lumber to sell as fence posts. It was hard physical labor for someone so malnourished, but Colleen was grateful to be outside in the fresh air. Hooker would later say that this was a perfect time in his life, having his slave work alongside him. April 1979, marked three years since 22-year-old Colleen Stan's kidnapping. Janice took a job working at Foster's Freeze, a hamburger stand on Main Street in Red Bluff. When Hooker arrived home from the lumber mill, Janice would leave to work for the dinner shift, sometimes working until midnight on the weekends. Hooker let Colleen out of the box in the evenings to cook his dinner and wash the dishes. He also had her take over the responsibility of caring for the hooker's six-month-old baby while Janice was at work. Hooker rarely spoke to Colleen. When he did, it was to share frightening stories about the dangerous and sadistic company to ensure that she'd be too terrified to attempt to run away. Janice still believed her husband was adhering to their agreement that he would not have sexual intercourse with their captive. But with Janice away in the evenings, Hooker used this time to his advantage by increasing Colleen's torture sessions, which now included rape and sodomy. He also added other forms of torture, including strapping Colleen to the rack and shocking her with electrical wires. The burns the electric shocks left caused permanent scars on her thighs. Hooker sneered sadistically and told her, I'm not doing this as a punishment. I'm doing it because I enjoy it. Colleen didn't need to hear this from him to confirm what she'd concluded long ago, that Cameron Hooker was pure evil, a human being without a soul. In the lead-up to Christmas 1979, Janice asked Colleen what she'd like for a Christmas gift. Colleen, surprised at the question, nevertheless knew exactly what possession she most wanted. She asked for a Bible. It was presented to her at Christmas, and Colleen was delighted. She read it whenever she was let out of the box and had any time alone. The words she read in her Bible comforted her and gave her hope that one day, God willing, she might escape the nightmare in which she was living. One evening in early 1980, Colleen was granted an unusual reward. She was taken out of the box, told to shower, and given clothes and makeup to wear by Janice. To Colleen's surprise, Janice took her to a bar for drinks and to dance. Janice had made the request of her husband, and he'd agreed. Two men began talking with the women at the bar and asked them to dance. At closing time, The men invited them to their apartment, not ready for the night to end. Janice and Colleen accompanied them to their shared apartment. Janice and one of the men entered the bedroom, while Colleen remained in the living room, sitting silently with the second man. Colleen was confused, not wanting to risk the wrath of either Cameron Hooker or the company watchman, so she was on pins and needles. Janice emerged from the bedroom and signaled that it was time to go. The two women said goodnight, and Janice took Colleen home and locked her back in the box under the bed. Janice had planned this night out to make her husband jealous. She was angry with him because of his obsession with Colleen, which continued to make her jealous and insecure. But her plan backfired. Hooker didn't care if his wife dated other men or even had sex with them. Even while he was periodically insisting that Janice submit to painful bondage sessions, It was Colleen he focused most of his sadistic attention on, and Janice knew this. Janice tried dating a couple of men briefly during her marriage, but ended these affairs when she realized that her husband was the only man whose attention she craved. When Janice lost her job in early 1980, Hooker decided to use Colleen to bring extra income into the household. He drove her across the state line to Reno, Nevada. She was made to walk up and down Reno's main strip for hours in the cold, begging strangers for money. On a couple of occasions, he took her out panhandling in and around Red Bluff as well. Colleen was now permitted outside to do yard work unaccompanied. The neighbors began to see the young woman whom they were told was the Hooker's live-in babysitter and housekeeper. She introduced herself as Kay. Hooker was now sure that Colleen would not risk running away. He convinced her that the danger the company posed to her and her family members was far too great a risk. He knew that Colleen was now completely under his control. He allowed Colleen to exercise. She began jogging in the neighborhood on her own. She didn't even dare vary her course, since Hooker knew her route and timed her down to the minute. Once, a neighbor stopped her to chat. She returned just a few minutes late, and as a punishment, Hooker subjected her to a particularly painful torture session and locked her back in the box. While Colleen enjoyed jogging, Hooker found a way to make exercise another form of torture. He forced her to run until she dropped in the hot fields near the trailer. Other times she was made to swim dozens of laps in a nearby pond. Even though she was extremely physically weak due to dehydration and malnourishment, Colleen was still glad for the opportunity to get out and exercise to avoid the cramped, stifling, and unhygienic conditions of the box under the bed. But no matter how exhausted Colleen was, she was whipped if she didn't perform the exercises as Hooker instructed. By this time, she had accepted that it was her fate to stay enslaved forever. She did her best to comply with every order she was given, and as a result, gradually earned Hooker's trust. He devised yet another way to mark Colleen as his property, one that inflicted not only pain, but humiliation. For what he called identification purposes, he pierced Colleen's labia, which he said also symbolized a wedding ring. Hooker began telling his captive that she would one day be his legitimate wife and would bear his children. He would later claim that he'd fallen in love with Colleen. He convinced himself that she loved him too. Sometimes he insisted that she profess her love to him. It is doubtful that Hooker had the capacity to love anyone but somewhere in his life had mixed up the feelings of pain and pleasure, lust and love, and short-circuited his capacity to empathize with others. But with the relative freedom Hooker thought he was granting to Colleen, it also came with the great risk of being discovered holding the young woman against her will. There were close calls a few times when Colleen was out of the box and tending to household chores. She was kept hidden even from the Hooker's close family members who lived nearby. Janice's parents, Cameron's father Harold and brother Dexter, dropped by the home frequently. On one occasion, his father opened the door to see Colleen on the floor in her nightgown cleaning. Hooker quickly ushered Colleen into the bedroom, telling his father the young woman named Kay was a friend who helped Janice around the house. In the evenings, Colleen often did piecework for Janice's employer. Any wages she earned were turned over to the Hooker's. From 1979 to 1980, Colleen spent many evenings helping Cameron dig a large hole on their property while Janice stood guard. The project took two years to complete, and by the end, the finished hole was lined with concrete blocks. Colleen, or Kay as they knew her, was now a familiar sight to the neighbors. She was often seen outside gardening, doing yard work, or watching the children. Hooker made it explicitly clear that Colleen wasn't to get into long conversations with anyone. She complied, keeping the chats to a quick exchange of pleasantries. If anyone thought it was odd that Kay always wore the same threadbare clothes, they never mentioned it. Despite Hooker's warnings, Colleen managed to develop a friendship with Dorothy Coppa, an elderly neighbor who lived next door with her husband Al. Several months later, in June 1980, Janice began working the daytime shift at an electronics company. After Janice and Cameron left for work in the morning, Colleen babysat their two daughters. During this time, the 23-year-old spent her night sleeping chained to the toilet in the bathroom off of Cameron and Janice's bedroom. The five-foot-long chain around Colleen's neck allowed her to sit up, stretch, and walk around the bathroom. She was grateful for this arrangement, despite the cruel conditions of her confinement. It allowed her to read her Bible, which she couldn't do while locked inside the box under the bed. This arrangement, with Colleen left at home during the day as free labor for the Hookers and chained in the bathroom at night, would continue for another eight months. As 1980 continued, Hooker grew even more confident in his control over Colleen. After repeated requests, He allowed Colleen to write letters to her sister on three occasions, but monitored what she shared with them. She wrote her sister that she was living with the family and working as a nanny, but did not disclose where. Satisfied with the content of the letters, Hooker mailed them from a different town, so her family wouldn't be tipped off to her location. But Colleen was desperate for more meaningful contact with her loved ones. After her repeated pleas, he finally permitted her to call her parents. As a precaution, Hooker drove Colleen 42 miles to the town of Chico, where she called home from a payphone. When her younger sister Bonnie Sue answered, she didn't recognize her voice until Colleen identified herself. She had been missing for over two years, and her family was baffled as to why she didn't come home or at least let them know where she was living. Colleen told Bonnie Sue she was okay and missed everyone, but still did not divulge her location, saying only that she was up north. Colleen was beyond grateful for this contact with her family and began to express these feelings towards her captor. Her situation had progressed over the months and years since her kidnapping, from the daily terror of wondering if she'd survive each day to being given small privileges, including clothing, not being locked in the box, having a little freedom, and especially being able to let her family know she was still alive. Hooker still tortured and raped Colleen regularly, but not daily as he had in the beginning. At times, he inflicted more pain on her to make her say that she loved him. Now she said it partially out of gratitude and partly as a strategy. Colleen noted that when she expressed these feelings towards Hooker, the abuse became less harsh and more infrequent. Hooker spoke in private to Colleen and expressed his love for her. He would describe their future saying he would move the whole family to Lake Tahoe. He promised Colleen that he would build her a private cabin. She would become his slave wife, and they would have children together, he continued to tell her. Janice was picking up on the increased attention and special privileges her husband granted their captive. She became increasingly jealous and threatened by Colleen's presence. The women began bickering over small things, and Janice privately nagged her husband to release Colleen. On Christmas Eve 1980, Colleen was allowed out of the box in time to make handmade cards for all the members of the Hooker family, Cameron, Janice, and their two daughters. In return, Hooker rewarded Colleen by allowing her to call home again. This time she spoke to her father, Jack. When he asked Colleen when she would return home, her only reply was, soon. By 1981, the tension between Janice and Colleen had grown, and they complained about each other to Hooker. Irritated, he made Janice quit her job to stay home and care for the children. It was far worse for Colleen, who was put back in the box under the bed. But first, she received one final concession. She would be allowed to visit her family in Riverside. Hooker would make the seven-hour drive himself to deliver her there. Colleen was made to make a show of saying goodbye to their neighbors. She told them she was returning to Southern California. She also said her goodbyes to the hooker's daughters, who had grown close to Kay. As his girls got older, having Colleen around them was a risk hooker could no longer take. His daughters, now aged four and two, were beginning to notice that something wasn't right. They had started asking why Kay was locked in the bathroom and why she had a lock around her neck. Hooker told Colleen this would be the first time in history that a slave was allowed to visit her family. He warned her about the implications if she tried to take advantage of this privilege by alerting anyone of her reality. He said he'd been required to pay the company $30,000 so a surveillance team could be hired to watch her and her family around the clock. If she tried anything, the consequences would be dire for both her and her loved ones. But before they left for the long 565-mile drive down south, Hooker had one last alarming loyalty test for Colleen. He made her kneel and placed a gun in her hands. He told her to put her mouth over the gun's barrel and pulled the trigger. Without knowing whether the weapon was loaded or not, Colleen did as she was told. Closing her eyes and shaking with fear, she pulled the trigger and heard a click. Nothing happened. She was still alive. She'd passed the test, and at last she'd get to see her family. On the morning of Friday, March 20th, 1981, Cameron Hooker left his home in Red Bluff with Colleen to visit her family in Riverside, California. They made a brief stop in Sacramento. Hooker left Colleen in the car parking in front of a building he claimed was the company's headquarters. He explained they wanted to see Colleen before she visited her family. He was going in first to find out what this meeting was about. Colleen waited in the car, terrified, and wondering if this whole trip was just a ploy to trick Hooker into turning her over to them. She was almost sick with fear after all the terrible stories he had told her about the women who'd been owned, sold, tortured, and murdered by the company. Hooker returned to the vehicle and told Colleen he'd taken care of things and they didn't need to meet with her after all. Colleen was overwhelmed with relief. He then handed her a typed card with a seal on it, instructing her to carry the card at all times. It would give her permission to carry cash, something prohibited by the company under threat of punishment, he told her. It seemed that Hooker created small details to keep Colleen believing completely in the power the company held over them both. For the rest of the drive to Southern California, Hooker had Colleen memorize the story they would tell her family about him and their relationship. She was to tell them that his name was Mike and he was her fiancé. The story was that he was attending a computer seminar in San Diego and was dropping her off on the way. He would pick her up at the end of the weekend. If Colleen's family asked for an address or phone number, she was to say that they were in the process of moving to a new place so she couldn't provide them with that information just yet. Around 7 p.m. on Friday evening, the pair arrived in Riverside. She was to spend the whole weekend alone with her family. In the meantime, he'd check into a motel nearby. Colleen called her father Jack from a payphone just minutes before they arrived at his house. Hooker pointed out a trailer down the street from her father's home explaining it was the company's surveillance van. His parting words were a warning. If Colleen tried to flee or said anything about her slave contract, the surveillance team, which was watching and listening in, would rush in, grab her, and kill her family immediately. Colleen's family, who had not seen her for four years, were shocked and delighted by the visit. There was no denying that she was much thinner than before. Her once long, lustrous, thick hair was now thin and dull, and her complexion was uncharacteristically pale. Nonetheless, she seemed happy and excited to be home. Colleen's family had a million questions, but she seemed reluctant to share much information about where she'd been since 1977, so her family didn't push it. Her handmade clothes, lack of money, and sparse communication over the years made them suspect she might have joined a cult. Although concerned, they didn't want to pressure her, afraid it might cause her to disappear forever. As we learned in episode one, Colleen's parents had been divorced for many years, but her mother Evelyn lived right around the corner from Colleen's father. On Saturday morning, Colleen walked over to see her mom, having spoken to her on the phone the night before, and making a promise to accompany her to church. During their visit, Colleen filled Evelyn in on her life, as much as she was allowed, and told her mother about her job as a babysitter. Evelyn thought it sounded like Colleen was living in some type of commune, but she also didn't want to press her daughter for too many details. Colleen spent the rest of the day visiting relatives in the area and catching up on the past. Early that evening, not long after returning to her father's house, Hooker called. He told Colleen it was time to go, and he'd pick her up in 10 minutes. She was crushed. She'd been promised the whole weekend with her family, but it had barely been 24 hours. When he arrived soon afterward, Colleen introduced him as Mike, her fiancé. Before they left, someone asked to take a picture of the couple. In the photo, Cameron and Colleen are both beaming at the camera. Colleen clings to him, both arms around his neck, as she rests her head on his shoulder. The photo projects an image of a happy couple in a loving relationship. After briefly stopping to say goodbye to her mother, Colleen and Cameron drove back to Red Bluff. When they returned, the house was empty. Janice had taken the girls to visit her parents. Hooker raped Colleen before locking her back in the box under the waterbed. When Janice arrived home, he informed her that Colleen would not be allowed out of the box without his permission. She remained locked away 23 hours a day for the majority of the next three years. Colleen was rarely seen out of the box for the next three years from March 1981 until May 1984. To outside observers, including their daughters, neighbors, and the Hooker's family members, Colleen had returned to her hometown for good. Even their young daughters, living in the tiny mobile home, didn't know Colleen had returned. She was let out of the box to eat and empty her bedpan only after the girls had gone to bed. Hooker went back to his practice of torturing Colleen at his whim. She was required to remain completely silent while inside the box. Lying in the dark, Colleen experienced near-total sensory deprivation. The air was stagnant, and during the warmer months, the temperature rose, making it even more difficult to breathe. On one occasion, the family left for a weekend vacation. Colleen remained locked inside the box without respite for three days straight. She was left without food or water during the first of these times they went away. When the hookers returned, she was seriously dehydrated and in an extremely weakened state. Alarmed, the hookers fed her and gave her water and let her out of the box until she regained her strength. From then on, when they went away, they left a quart of water and a snack in the box with her. Colleen spent months lying locked in the dark. While awake, she spun fantasies in her head of the things she'd someday do and the places she would go. To distract herself from the endless hours of isolation and deprivation, she recalled memories of happier times from her life before she was kidnapped. Cycling through her memories was the only thing that kept her going when she worried she might go mad. Her tedium was broken only by horrible, painful torture sessions and rape inflicted by Hooker. In 1982, 23-year-old Janice was hospitalized for another knee surgery. While she was away, Colleen was repeatedly raped. By now, the hooker's marriage was crumbling, and after Janice returned home in an attempt to save the relationship, the couple agreed to confess their secrets to each other. Janice told Cameron she'd lied about being pregnant when they married over seven years earlier. She also admitted to engaging in two short-lived affairs in 1980. When it was Cameron's turn, He divulged what Janice feared most. He confessed that he'd engaged in sexual intercourse with Colleen since she was first kidnapped. Janice felt utterly betrayed. She'd wanted to believe that he'd kept his promise to her and devastated at being told the truth, she threatened to leave him. Janice and Cameron Hooker were locked in a toxic, codependent relationship, cemented by terrible secrets they held that could destroy them both. While Janice believed she was in love with her husband, and couldn't live without him. Karen Hooker felt dependent on Janice for stability and nurturing. He also feared if she became angry and vindictive, she could turn on him and report what was happening in their home. It was in his best interest, therefore, to keep the peace. Even so, his need for violent sexual gratification and control overtook his desire for peace. Despite having a, quote, sex slave that he'd promised Janice would take her place when it came to violent and sadistic sexual fantasies, the 29-year-old was still subjecting his wife to non-consexual bondage and whipping. The only things Janice wasn't forced to endure were electric shocks and wearing the headbox. The following year, in 1983, and for the next 18 months, Cameron revealed to Janice that he was preparing dungeons that would allow him to keep up to as many as four slaves. Torturing his wife and Colleen was no longer enough for him. By the end of that year, he moved Colleen to the hole in the bottom of a shed they'd begun digging back in 1979. He referred to this as the dungeon. He and Colleen had dug for a couple of hours each night, two or three nights a week, until they enlarged the hole to the size of a small room. Hooker then installed flooring and built walls using cement bricks he made himself. But when it began to rain after just a week, the hole started to fill with water. Colleen was taken out and returned to the box under the bed. It was like a cruel game of musical chairs. Three weeks later, Hooker moved his captive back to the hole. But soon after, the hooker's daughter and her cousin came upon the entrance to the secret room while playing on the property. They hadn't seen Colleen inside, but it was a close call. So she was returned to the box. The underground room was never used again. To her surprise, on New Year's Eve 1983, Colleen's 27th birthday, Cameron and Janice presented her with a cake, singing Happy Birthday. Hooker now said he had some rewards for Colleen in return for her obedience and for being a quote, good slave. Hooker began letting Colleen out of the box at night, and also allowed her to sleep in the bathroom adjacent to his bedroom. She was also given the use of the kitchen to prepare herself a meal before being locked in. She spent this newfound freedom out of the darkness of the box by staying up late, reading, writing poetry, or doing crafts. Colleen was now allowed to call Janice by her name instead of ma'am, although Hooker was still to be referred to as Sir or Master. Janice also gave Colleen more freedom, taking her out of the box two or three times a day to read the Bible, do chores, or simply talk. The women even ate lunch together. But despite these privileges, Colleen was still controlled by the fear of both Cameron Hooker and the company. Sometime earlier, Janice and Colleen began reading the Bible together and discussing how it applied to their lives. Colleen had long ago found solace in her faith and read her Bible as often as possible. She spent many hours while locked up praying and meditating on Bible passages. As a result of studying the Bible together, Colleen and Janice's relationship changed. Now they realize that they were both Cameron Hooker's victims, utterly dependent on him, abused by him, and trapped. They began to form a bond. These Bible study sessions brought them peace, solace, and perhaps a shred of hope. As Janice and Colleen began opening up to each other about their lives, feelings, and hopes for the future, they realized they were no longer alone in their experiences of being at Cameron Hooker's mercy. After a while, he began joining his wife and Colleen in their interest to study the Bible. Janice had become angry about his confession that he had been making Colleen have sex with him, and he tried to calm her down by convincing her he was trying to turn over a new leaf. Cameron Hooker had poor reading skills, so he had Janice read Bible passages out loud to him. When he realized that certain passages made specific reference to how slaves should regard their masters and how wives should be submissive to their husbands, he used the women's faith as another way to control them. He cherry-picked these passages, using them to justify his abuse of the two women. Janice ever depended on her husband, whom she both loved and feared, believed him when he told her that if she did not obey him, she would go to hell. He began doubling down on his abuse of Janice, subjecting her to more frequent and painful bondage sessions, claiming he was trying to save her soul. He told her that her failure to submit to his total control indicated that she was possessed by the devil. To save her soul, it was his responsibility to, quote, drive the demons out of her. Colleen received some respite, as Hooker refrained from physically and sexually assaulting her for months. In early 1984, he made the decision to let Colleen out of the box full-time, and she began sleeping in the living room. She had also been reintroduced to the Hooker's daughters, now aged 7 and 5, and began babysitting them again. The neighbors had been told that Kay had returned from Southern California. None of these decisions was because Hooker had turned a new leaf or suddenly felt compassion for his captive. After almost seven years of his total domination over Colleen's every move, he was so completely and utterly confident in his control over her that he no longer feared she'd attempt an escape. In May of 1984, the seventh anniversary of Colleen's kidnapping, Hooker allowed her to get a job outside of the home. He said she could now contribute to the household, and he'd save her wages. When enough was saved, he told Colleen, he'd buy her a small trailer where she could live on her own next to his, of course. She began working as a motel maid at the King's Lodge, a few miles from the Hooker's home. She wasn't employed under her real name, of course, but as Kay Powers. Sometimes Janice drove her to work, but other times Colleen rode a bicycle. She always gave her paychecks to Hooker, who let her keep just $20 in spending money, or about $60 in today's dollars. Colleen was such a conscientious and diligent employee that her boss, Doris Myron, took note. She was soon promoted to work the front desk. She became friendly with her boss. She confided to Doris that she gave all her paychecks to the hookers for, quote, room and board. Doris was shocked and felt the couple was taking advantage of this sweet, naive, hardworking young woman. On one occasion, a co-worker drove Colleen home, and she was invited inside. When she noticed a sleeping bag on the floor... Colleen told her that's where she slept. She also noticed that Colleen didn't appear to have much clothing or personal possessions, which she thought was odd. Hooker arrived home while Colleen's co-worker was still there, and he stared at her so openly that she felt uneasy. She quickly made an excuse to leave. Hooker continued to find loopholes in the Bible that he twisted for his own selfish interests. He began to refer to Colleen as his slave wife, comparing her to Abraham's biblical service Hagar, from the Old Testament book of Genesis. He announced that he had been told by God that he should treat his wife Janice and his biblical wife Colleen equally. He explained that this meant he would now sleep and engage in sex with both women on alternate nights. Neither woman was happy with this arrangement, but believed they had no choice but to submit. The Bible passage Hooker referred to repeatedly told the story of Sarah, or Sarai, Abraham, and their maidservant Hagar, to justify having sex openly with Colleen. The passage from Genesis 16, verses 1 through 3 reads, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Then Sarah took Hagar, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. Hooker began to rape Colleen again, and additionally required both women to sleep together with him in one bed. He went even further, at times insisting that Janice and Colleen engage in sex acts with one another. In July 1984, Janice and Colleen began attending the same church in Red Bluff. The Church of the Nazarene was headed by Pastor Frank Dabney. Hooker declined to attend after the first few times accompanying the women, but allowed them to continue to go on their own. It was while listening to the pastor's teachings that Janice realized that her husband's version of the Bible was wrong. She started seeking Pastor Dabney's counsel and sought his advice about how she should live her life according to God's word. Hooker had been intent on finding another woman to enslave, and Janice panicked. She knew she couldn't go to the police because she'd been complicit in Colleen's kidnapping and enslavement. She was afraid of going to prison, but more terrified of her children being taken away from her. Early the following month, in August, Janice approached Pastor Dabney again. She tentatively began to reveal some details of what had been occurring in the hooker's home, but couldn't bring herself to tell him about the sex slavery. Instead, she said she was involved in a love triangle. Pastor Dabney told Janice, this behavior was a sin against God and that she should end the situation. Now in turmoil, Janice confided to Colleen that she was considering leaving her husband. But Colleen, terrified of being left alone with her captor, begged Janice not to go. Janice suggested that Colleen come with her. But this was an even more frightening prospect for Colleen, who replied, We can't go. The company will find us and torture us. Hearing that, Janice felt backed into a corner. She finally knew what she had to do. On August 9th, 1984, Janice went to the King's Lodge Motel where Colleen worked. There, away from her husband, she screwed up her courage and dropped a bombshell on Colleen. I need to tell you something, Janice began. She told Colleen the truth. The whole story about the company was a lie. There was no company, no slave contract. And she told Colleen she could leave any time without fear of repercussion from some secret underground omnipotent organization. At first, Colleen was surprised. This soon turned to shock before anger filled every fiber of her being. She'd believed these lies for seven years. Over a quarter of her life had been stolen. And for what? She cried as she grappled with the news. Janice begged for Colleen's forgiveness and wept bitterly about the part she'd played. Colleen promptly went into the motel office and announced that she was quitting effective immediately, but would finish her shift. That evening, before returning home, Colleen and Janice visited Pastor Dabney. They needed someone to help them plan their escape. Pastor Dabney learned that Colleen, or Kay as he'd known her, had been kept against her will, tortured, and sexually abused, and that both women were terrified of Cameron Hooker. He told the women to pack their things and leave immediately. But it was getting late in the evening now, and close to time when they were due to pick up Cameron from work. So their plan was to buy some time and say nothing that evening. They all drove home together, and the women acted as if there was nothing out of the ordinary. The next morning, August 10th, 1984, after Hooker left for work, Janice and Colleen packed up, took the children, and went to Janice's parents' house in a town nearby. Colleen called and surprised her father by asking him to send her bus fare to come home. The following day, Colleen was dropped off at the bus station. Before boarding the bus, she had an important phone call to make. Dialing Cameron Hooker, she told him she was leaving. She said she knew he'd lied to her for years, and she wasn't afraid of him anymore. He no longer had any control over her. According to Colleen, his immediate response was silence. Speechless, he burst into tears. I'll share all the details of Colleen's escape, Janice's confession, and the arrest and trial of Cameron Hooker, as well as the aftermath, in Part 3, next week that will do it for part two of the girl in the box come back next week for the final episode in this series which will release on monday january 29th be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode if you're a patreon member you won't have to wait a week for part three you get every episode of once upon a crime before anyone else and can listen ad free to find out more and join go to patreon.com slash upon a crime Memberships start at just $2 a month. And as a thank you, you'll also receive special gifts in the mail. That's patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. There's a link in the show notes. Do you want to keep up with what's new and upcoming on Once Upon a Crime? You can remain in the loop by following us on our social media channels. It's a great way to connect with me and the whole OUAC team. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. You can also join our Facebook group to interact with me and your fellow listeners. Look for the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page on Facebook. Follow and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search for Once Upon a Crime podcast. And on TikTok, you can find us at OUACpod. Get all the links to our social media channels at our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My production and administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia and was co-written by Gemma Harris. Until next time, be good to one another.